enjoyed, no, it's probably the wrong word to use. Who appreciated the baggage series? Yeah, like I won't say enjoyed because when you're dealing with some deeply personal things, it's not really enjoyable, right? But we appreciate it, yeah? I um, was thinking about this and I know a few people who deliberately avoided the baggage series. Like they did, they, and they were up front and they told me, I'm not coming, I'm not, I don't, I don't wanna deal with my baggage. And I have to admit, I thought that was kind of funny and then a couple of Fridays ago, Craig and I were out together and we were in this certain place and doing some stuff and I had this moment when I was fully triggered and I was getting really agitated and I could feel it building and I was like, so in the end I kind of excused myself and took a step back and found a quiet corner and, and I was like, what's going on? I was like, oh, okay, I'm actually fully getting triggered by this. This is obviously some baggage I'm carrying. And I kind of just sat myself out and you know, we, Craig finished up and we were in the car and we're driving home and he says, so, that was a bit of a triggering moment, wasn't it? I was like, yeah, it was. And he goes, um, so are you gonna deal with this baggage? No. Nah. And he goes, what do you mean no? Why not? I went, I don't wanna. And he's like looking at me like, what? And he goes, no, no, you have to deal with it because you know, it's, it's come up. And I'm like, nah, I really don't. And he goes, what, you're just gonna stuff it down? He goes, it'll just keep rearing its head. Oh, no, 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 it won't keep rearing its head because this was a special circumstance. This was a sports bag moment, right? If you've just been part of the series, you know what I'm talking about. This only comes out at certain times. So now that I know that this particular situation is a trigger, I can quite easily avoid this ever happening again. I'm going to leave that sports bag in the bottom of the wardrobe with all the shoes on top of it, and I'm not going to think about it anymore. And Craig's like, absolutely like, but... But the whole series, we're in the middle of the series, you're supposed to deal with your baggage. Nah, I'm not. <laughs> and I haven't. So, um, <laughs> so I fully appreciate people who are trying to avoid the whole baggage thing. I have a new appreciation for that. Um, and I'm sure that eventually God's going to um, pin me for it. And I thought it was quite funny when Pete said, you know, God said to you know, what are you whinging about, your baby? And I'm like... That's, you know, because that's, that's the conversation God and I are going to have. He's going to get to a point where he's going to go, okay, Trin, we need to deal with this. And one of the things I really appreciate about God is that people believe that God loves everyone equally. God doesn't love you equally. He loves you uniquely. Because what I need from God is different to what you're going to need from God. I don't need the gentle, loving. I need God to sit me down and go, Trin, we're doing this. And thankfully, the sports bag is staying where it is because God's not saying that at the moment. <laughs> no doubt it will appear in a message in about a year or so when God brings it back up. But at the moment, we're all good. So this message that I'm doing today is part, of, and if you were in our church a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I did a series of messages on spiritual warfare. And I had actually originally produced or prepared four messages, but at the time, I only did three. Like the fourth message I've never preached, but I really felt um, sort of a week or so or two weeks ago that to do this fourth message now. So even though it's part of a different series, it's not really connected to the baggage series, but I actually felt it was quite important. Um, and it's, it's a teaching message, right? So this is, this is not a, an emotional message. This is not a rah, rah, build you up. This is a full-on proper teaching message. So if you, got, if you take notes, great. If you get halfway through and you've forgotten where I'm going with this, um, that's fine. Holler out to me and I'll get you some notes. But 
but be prepared. There's going to be a lot of scripture. I'm going to move fairly quickly because I completely forgot that we had communion and tear fun today. So I apologize for that. So right, let's turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication of the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. That is my all-time favorite scripture. When I first got saved and started the journey of becoming a disciple and reading my Bible, no one had told me that the word of God can leap out at you. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you read something and all of a sudden it's like your blood begins to sing. And that's what happens when I read that. I particularly like it in the New King James Version just because it sounds so much more powerful. I've tried reading other versions and it just sounds wussy. So... Anyway, that's just got nothing to do with what I was going to say. So, in the last several years, the body of Christ as a whole, I'm talking globally, um, has begun to have a greater awareness of spiritual warfare. Now, normally, and in, in when I was younger and stuff, and spiritual warfare was generally only talked about in reference to your spiritual life. But spiritual warfare is something that we actually have to be really understanding about. And one of the things that that because of the spiritual warfare, and we've had a greater awareness as Christians about this, more and more Christians are participating, and more and more Christians are getting actively involved in it. And this is all great and wonderful, except for the fact that Satan doesn't like it. And because he doesn't like it, and because he understands that the weapons that you have are bigger and stronger and greater than the weapons he has, it's in his best interest to cause you to be distracted. And the best distraction that he has at the moment in his life, and the, and the one that he uses the most in our lives, is he gets us to shoot at anything other than himself. So what happens is, and in particular, and I've, I've been quite aware of this, is that he, nine times out of ten, he will try to get you to shoot at other Christians. He will try to get you to become so annoyed at other Christians that that is where you're firing, because if you are firing at them then you're not going to be firing at him, right? And it's something that we need to be, be aware of. And you're going to see, and you probably would have already noticed, that there seems to be some ridiculous, divisive things happening in the body of Christ, right? We get into arguments with brother, our Christian brothers and sisters over the smallest, most ridiculous things possible. One of the things that deeply concerns me is when we get distracted by do we baptize someone forward or do we baptize someone backward? It actually doesn't matter so long as they're fully immersed in the water. But we've had churches fully split over this issue, right? So, have you ever seen those old black and white movies and where the bad guy is running away from the cops? 
Have you ever seen those? And he normally runs into like a deserted warehouse. And when he gets into this deserted warehouse, the cops come along and they jump out and they're all like, you're surrounded. And what the, cops, what the bad guy does is he usually picks up a bottle or a rock or a pipe, something that's on the ground, and he throws it, right, out to create a distraction. Now, what he does is he doesn't throw it straight up in the air. What he does is he throws it away from where he is, right? And so then the cops all turn and they start shooting where the noise is. That is what the devil does. That is what the enemy does. When he is wanting to get you distracted, he will point you in the direction of something else. Now, I'm building up to a reason for why I'm telling you this. God has a number of laws which work all the time. 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. These things work without your input. They work continuously. Sometimes God's laws will work for you. And at other times, they will work against you. And it depends on whether or not you're cooperating with them as to whether or not they're going to work for you or work against you. Take gravity, for example. Gravity is quite important. And gravity is really awesome because it works whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. So this isn't one of those things where God just blesses you with gravity because you're his child, right? Because, I mean, it would be kind of easier if he did because then you'd know who was unsaved because there'll be other people floating, Right. So gravity, though, is a really awesome blessing. If I have a cup of water and I put the cup of water here, because of God's law of gravity, it's going to work in my favor, and it's actually going to stay there, right? Now, you may not realize this, but I'm a little klutzy, and there are times when gravity does not work in my favor. Like, I can trip, or I can stumble, or I can fall, and next thing you know, you're face-planted onto the ground. Why? Because gravity is still at work. Was it in my favor? Not really. And gravity does this not because it's, it's, it doesn't like you. It's not personal. Gravity doesn't care who you are or what you've done. Gravity works because that's the law. And gravity pulls everything into the center, right? So it works for all of us. Another of God's laws is the law of agreement. If you look in Matthew 18, 19, it says... Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Our strength is in unity. You would have all heard that great quote by Martin Luther, united we stand, divided we fall. You know that one? You're familiar with that? Jesus even says it in Matthew 12, 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And in Genesis 11, we read this really interesting story about the Tower of Babel. And it says in verse 1, Now the whole earth had, sorry, in chapter 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the, to the sea, the city, and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They all have one language. And this is what they begin to do now. Uh, to do Now, nothing they propose will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, 
Its name is called Babel, and because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of all the earth. So this is a story about a group of ungodly people who determined in their hearts to build a tower unto themselves. So these were evil people. These were not God-fearing people. So these were evil people who were employing a law in God's creation, the law of agreement, and they were going to use it to build something to themselves. You see, God's laws work whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. It's like, if you think about organized crime, right? So how many billions of dollars have governments around the world spent to try and get rid of organized crime? They can't because they're in unity, because they've pledged um, to a family or to an organization. And so therefore, because they have this power of unity, they're able to actually overthrow or circumvent whatever the laws the governments are trying to, um, are trying to bring onto them. In Deuteronomy 32:30, it tells of the potential strength of unity. What's interesting is it says, uh, one can put to chase a thousand and two put to chase 10,000. I find this really interesting because wouldn't logic say that if one can do a thousand, then two could do two thousand? So why does the Bible say that two can put to flight ten thousand? Because when we are in unity, our strength multiplies exponentially. The power of unity has long been recognized in harness for both good and for evil. In the movie Gladiator, Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, and his fellow gladiators are in the Roman Colosseum, preparing for a bloody battle, and when he exhorts the others to band together as one. In fact, we have a really cool clip so you can see what it looks like. I really like the image of that when he says, whatever comes out of the, these gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. If we stay together, we survive. Come together, lock your shield, stay as one. It's a powerful demonstration of unity. And what's really sad for us is that even Satan knows this principle. And he constantly incites dramatic division between the Christian ranks by pointing out the differences that we have in our denominational and theological um, beliefs. Now, some of my closest friends in ministry have different beliefs to mine. Like, for example, I do not believe that the world was created in a literal seven days. I have pastor friends who believe the world was created in a literal seven days. But the, the thing that we come together in agreement on, we both believe that God did it. You see... It's looking at what we have in common more than we have in difference. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you believe that he went to the cross and died for your sins, if you believe that he rose again and now has ascended on high and has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, then we have a lot more in common than we do against, right? Now, I do not mean that we should, not, we should close our eyes to obvious doctrinal or theological errors, which can endanger someone's internal soul. That is a completely different scenario to what I'm talking about. I do find, however, that most of the conversations I have with people on the difference of beliefs actually centers more on our personal likes and dislikes. It centers more on things like worship, style of worship. I personally like worship that's driven by the drums. I know other people who prefer worship driven by the keyboard and other people who prefer it driven by guitars. What does it matter so long as it's all worship unto Jesus, right? It is actually, none of those things really have any um, bearing on where we're going to spend eternity. And that's what it's about. Eternity is actually the real issue. Israel was comprised of 12 distinctly different, um, made up of 12 distinctly different tribes. 
um, but they had different peculiarities that was um, for each particular tribe. If you go through, you'll see that each tribe had certain characteristics, but they were actually unified on two things. They were unified on worship, and they were unified on warfare. They had the same God, and they had the same enemy. If we have the same God and the same enemy, then we can stand side by side, and we can fight side by side, not face to face. Now, unity was originally designed to be modeled by the family unit. Unfortunately, the enemy has worked long and hard to disrupt and destroy the family unit. Instead of having uh, a family unit that would show unity, where you've got people who are loving of one another, protective of one another, uplifting of one another, supportive of one another, we now have dysfunctional families that don't show any of those things. And what that means is that most people do not actually understand or can see what true unity looks like. Matthew 18, 15 to 22 details God's prescription for healing an offense between Christian brothers. The sole intent of this passage is actually to aid us in establishing and maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Matthew 18, 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established and if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church but if he refuses to hear the church let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector assuredly I say to you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where there are two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So today, what I actually want to do is I want to learn you something. That's what some of my students say. We're going to learn something. Yeah, I want to learn you something. I want to teach you something. Today I want to show you how when we've been distracted by the work of the enemy and you're in conflict with your Christian brother or sister, how do we actually deal with that? How do we get back to where we're supposed to be? So we're going to break it down verse by verse. So if you're taking notes, this is about the time to start. So verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you and you tell him his fault, but you tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. It is essential that you go to the offending brother first. You don't go to your connect group. You don't plaster it all over social media. You don't sit down and, and talk to somebody else about it because you want advice. You go to the person directly. Now, if you are someone and somebody's come to you and they want to talk to you about somebody, this is what you say. Have you spoken to that person? If they say no, then you say, do not tell me go and see that person. There's a two-way responsibility here. If somebody's coming to you, and I know that we love the gossip, I know we love the team, we want to hear it all, but we, as Christians, the kingdom principle here is we go, have you spoken to that person? And then you just don't hear another word until they do. Now, it would be wrong here for any of us to take Jesus' word to confront every single person with every sin that they've ever committed against us, Right? Because the Bible says that you should bear with one another and be long-suffering toward each other. Ephesians 4.2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, 
bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3, 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. So there are some things that somebody may have said to you, done to you, that might have upset you, that you might have to actually assess. Is this something that I need to deal with? Or is this something that I can, through grace, extend it to them, let it go? You know what I'm talking about? There is a person who I know who every time I speak, I get off the stage and they come up to me and they give me a list of all the reasons why women shouldn't be speaking and they tell me everything that I'm doing wrong. And you know what? Because of long-suffering and grace I extend to them, I haven't addressed it. Just let it go. Because I know where they're from. I know what's going on in their world. I know how they think and it's not that big a deal. But there are some things that we can't suffer along with, right? and we must address them. So, when Jesus, so Jesus basically gives us two options when we feel offended against Christians, when we feel offended against someone. We can go to them directly and deal with it, or we can just drop the matter under Christian long-suffering and bearing with one another. The other options of holding on to bitterness, retaliation, gossiping to others about the problem are not allowed. And nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say that you should do this, that you can do this. So if you're someone who does that, you just need to stop now. This is Jesus giving you a very gentle warning before he makes it public. Spurgeon says it like this, we must not trespass, we must not let trespasses rankle in our bosom by maintaining a sullen silence, nor may we go and publish the matter abroad. We must seek out the offender and tell him his fault as if he were not aware of it, as perhaps he may not be. I think that's a really good key. Sometimes we're offended at people, but they have no clue. They don't know that they've upset you. They don't know that they've hurt your feelings. They don't know that, that, that you have one nerve left and, you, and they stood on it. So you need to tell them. You need to have conversation. We need to have communication. If your brother hears you, you have gained him in two ways. First of all, the problem has been cleared up. Maybe you had a conversation and you realized that he was right in some ways and maybe he realized that you were right in some ways, um, but either way, the problem is now resolved. The other way that you gain him is that you have not wronged your brother by going and gossiping to other people and telling one half of the side of a dispute. You see, the most important thing, though, that Jesus says here is he did not say that your brother must agree with you or immediately repent before you. It's enough that he's heard you, right? Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So the circle of people involved in this will get wider if the offending party refuses to listen. If they have a stubborn or unrepentant attitude remains, um, they are to be refused fellowship. It is also true that when you invite one or two more people, and I mean wise people, Pick, pick the people you're talking to about this wisely, right? It may be that the person, when they've heard both sides of the story, may actually resolve, it in a, resolve this issue by assigning responsibility different than the first offended person had thought. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. One of the things that working with my students has taught me is that the first person who comes to you with a story of offense, you will automatically believe. The other thing that you have to understand, and this is going to help you if you've got kids or any people, particularly children, as they grow, teenagers and stuff, every single person is going to tell you the version of the story where they're the victim. 
everyone, and, and, it's, and it's our nature to make sure that we look the best in every situation. So we're going to tell you the story of, of the offense and how it happened to make sure that you understand that I'm the victim in this. That may not be the, necessarily the case. That's how I perceive it. Doesn't mean that's the truth of the situation. Our goal at all times must be restoration of relationship more than proving oneself right. And while it's a very unwise thing to interfere in quarrels between other people, between friends, between family, it is very clear that Jesus expects us that if we've been asked to assist, that we do so. And you do so openly with a, a clear, open mind, not picking sides. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, then let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Tax collector. I don't know. Anyone here work for Indian Revenue? That's good. Tax collectors. I'll tell you, they're worse than heathens, obviously. They have their own category. I always thought that was hilarious. So, if the unrepentant one, we must treat them as we would if they were a heathen and a tax collector. So what does that mean? That means we just cut them off. We ignore them, we kick them, we spit on them. No, it doesn't. What it means is we treat them with great love with the goal of bringing about full repentance and reconciliation. Because remember, our goal is always reconciliation. Verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this, um, this has another principle, another one of God's laws, the law of binding and loosing. What's really interesting is that previously, a couple of chapters earlier, in Matthew 16, 19, it says almost the exact same thing as this verse here, which says, And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's interesting is that both these verses are talking about the law of binding and loosing. See, in Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying to them, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. You can have everything that's in the kingdom. These are the keys. You can access it all. But he reveals that as a result of this, been given those keys that you can bind and loose. Obviously stating that the benefit of this law is for those who cooperate with it. Matthew 18, however, Jesus is actually warning us about potential danger when we do not cooperate with this law. Because he says that you should make peace with your brother at any cost. The penalty for not making peace with your brother is that if you stay out of unity and you refuse to forgive that we have bound, we have tied our own hands in regards to spiritual warfare. When we make peace with our brother and forgive him, we loose our hands for spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? So your hands are bound by your own actions, by holding grudges. Verse 19 and 20, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done by them, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Our prayers will be answered when we stand together in unity, when you stand in agreement. It is obvious that there could be only one reason why we've sandwiched the laws of binding and loosing between passages of, in between passages of forgiveness and unity. When I forgive someone, I'm removing the ropes from my own hands, the bonds that I placed when I first decided to hold a grudge. Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, what Peter's saying is actually true. In their culture, they were told that if someone sins against you every single day, you had to forgive them seven times in that same day. So he's thinking he's been pretty good. Jesus, though, says in verse 22, 
I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I don't think that Jesus believes that we should be limiting our forgiveness to 490 times per day. Although if you calculate it, that's like once every three minutes. Now, there's only one person in my world who ticks me off that much. Um, and we won't say who that is because that's just... So basically, Jesus is saying that we should forgive people as often and as necessary as is required to keep our hands free in warfare. Now, I had a, a little while ago, somebody asked me, how can I forgive someone when I don't trust them? Trust and forgiveness is two very separate things. You see, when someone comes to you and they say, um, if you really forgive me, you will trust me. That's manipulation. That is not what God says. At no stage did God say, forgive someone and trust them. It's never forgive and forget. That's what God does. That's not what we do. You don't forgive someone who has stolen money from you and then turn around and put them in charge of your finances, right? We don't, we don't forgive the terrorists for blowing up the airplane and then put them in charge of airport security. Like, there is forgiveness and trust is a whole separate other issue. You do not have to prove that you've forgiven someone by trusting them. You just have to keep saying, I forgive you. Forgiveness is not a one-time thing. It is a lifetime commitment. Have you noticed sometimes when you think you've won the victory over forgiving someone and then something happens when you least expect it, like a memory or someone says their name or you can, can smell some cologne and all of a sudden you're right back where you were when it happened. It's amazing the triggers that can be so unexpected. And then you've got to start again when it happens, when something reminds you and that re-irritation resurfaces or you get really upset again, it's time to forgive again. You've got to forgive. 70 times 7, 490 times a day, once every three minutes. That means that at the most you can only hold a grudge for 2 minutes and 59 seconds. <laughs> now a while ago I did a study on the conscious and the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind actually stores everything. Did you know that you actually don't forget anything? It's all in your subconscious mind. By the time you are 30, your subconscious mind has remembered 3 trillion memories. So nothing is truly forgotten. What's really interesting though is the characteristics of the subconscious is that it cannot distinguish emotionally between a real experience and an imagined or remembered one. Do you know that? This is why the Bible says in Matthew 5:28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Although he may not have even touched her, his subconscious mind has already experienced similar emotions to those as if he had actually gone through with it and committed adultery. There are some individuals who, if you sit with them long enough, they're going to tell you every single painful thing that has ever happened in their life. But what's happening with them internally is that their subconscious is reliving those memories as if it was just happening to them in that moment. So every time you really live a painful experience, your subconscious assumes it is happening to you again. So why would you allow anyone to continually keep hurting you like that? The way I see it is I love myself too much to go through all that pain again. And not to, to mention the fact that God himself voted for forgiveness. So if I'm not forgiving, then who's actually voting in the kingdom? When we hold a grudge, we are removing the breastplate of righteousness from our emotions and we are leaving them vulnerable to Satan and his demons. 
Forgiveness is a process. It is not an experience. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Walk through this forgiveness process. Your healing will come to you as you forgive. And until you submit this part of your emotions to God, you are not wearing the whole armor of God. You are not ready for the battle. I'd just like to band the crowd.